Hi everyone, welcome to my Inquiring Mind podcast. I am your host, Kate Kroom. On the list of great horror story writers, we have Stephen King, who's responsible for It, The Shining, Pet Cemetery, Carrie, Need I Go On? We even have Edgar Allan Poe, known for writing The Raven, Bram Stoker, who wrote Dracula, Mary Shelley, who wrote Frankenstein, and more recently, we have Jordan Peele, who is responsible for giving us Get Out, Us, Candyman, the Twilight Zone series. Oh yeah, there's one more, Mother Goose. Yep, you heard me right, I said Mother Goose. Mother Goose was that fictional old lady who wrote all of the nursery rhymes that many of us grew up listening to, and maybe some of you have even passed those nursery rhymes and songs onto your own children. But most of those nursery rhymes actually come from very dark origins. So sit back and hold on tight. Today's episode may ruin your childhood. These are the dark backstories to your favorite nursery rhymes and children's songs. Getting right into it in no particular order, at number one, I have Peter Peter Pumpkin Eater. The nursery rhyme went like this. Peter Peter Pumpkin Eater had a wife and couldn't keep her, put her in a pumpkin shell, and there he kept her very well. Oh, but wait! The original version went like this. Eeper Weeper Chimney Sweeper had a wife but couldn't keep her, had another, didn't love her, Up the chimney he did shove her. This one, boys and girls, is a story about murder. The Oxford Dictionary of Nursery Rhymes notes Peter Peter Pumpkin Eater as first appearing in 1790. That wife that quote-unquote couldn't be kept in this rhyme? Yeah, she didn't run away or anything like that. She was a prostitute. Some historians believe that Peter the Pumpkin Eater, tired of his wife's extracurricular activities, then murdered her and hid her body in a pumpkin. Two things, that must have been a really little lady or a really big pumpkin. But even more outrageous is another interpretation. It's thought that the meaning of Peter Peter Pumpkin Eater is about the 13th century English King John who famously bricked a rebellious noble's wife into the wall and starved her to death. Why were we taught these horrible songs, especially when they have dark meanings and stories They've just been modified over the years, so that makes it okay. Coming in at number two, we have Rub-A-Dub-Dub. Rub-A-Dub-Dub is an English language nursery rhyme which was first published at the end of the 18th century. And it goes like this. Rub-A-Dub-Dub, three men in a tub. And who do you think they were? The butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker. They all sailed out to sea. T'was enough to make a man stare. Now, this one's earliest versions published differ significantly in their wording. The very first recorded version, which was published in London in 1798, actually went like this. Hey, rub-a-dub, ho, rub-a-dub, three maids in a tub, and who do you think were there? The butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker, and all of them gone to the fair. By 1830, the reference to maids being in the tub was then removed from children's nursery books, for obvious reasons, and it was changed to this. 
Rub-a-dub-dub. Three fools in a tub. And who do you think they were? The butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker. Because of its original version where the word maids is used, some believe the rhyme's origins come from the tale of three maids reclining in a tub at the county fair. The women were being watched by a mostly male audience. So basically what this rhyme comes down to is creepy, probably upper-class men watching women in a tub together. It almost suggests that the naked ladies were an attraction at the fairground. Maybe they were being held as prisoners and forced to do this, considering women were not exactly valued at those times and were often looked at as objects. Or maybe they willingly did this to make money, kind of like a modern-day prostitute or stripper. Either way, it's creepy. Also, rub-a-dub-dub can now be taken a few different ways after hearing its creepy backstory. I'll leave that to your imagination. Coming in at number three is Ring Around the Rosy. While a lot of people in my research want to believe that this is just a tale about children dancing around and giving each other flowers, it's actually a tale of pretty tragic times. Ring Around the Rosy was originally written about the plague that killed hundreds of thousands of people throughout the years. The rhyme goes like this. Ring around the rosy, pocket full of posies. Ashes, ashes, we all fall down. Two well-known plagues that devastated Europe in the Middle Ages were known as the Black Death, which happened from 1347 to 1350, and the Great London Plague, which happened in 1665. Rhymes and songs were a popular way for people to tell stories, and they also served as a way of passing on those stories about life's experiences from generation to generation. So they weren't necessarily used as just happy little songs to teach your kids about counting and learning. This one is pretty easy to break down. Unfortunately, it's not actually about the kids holding hands and spinning around a rose bush until they get so dizzy that they all fall down. Ring Around the Rosy refers to a round-shaped rash that people would get on their skin that was actually a reddish or purple in color, and this was one of the first signs that a person might have had the plague. A pocket full of posies. I found two possible meanings to this part. The first one is a posy is basically another word for a small bouquet of flowers. So people sick with the plague would put flowers in their pockets in hopes to mask the quote unquote smell of death. And the other description is the posies represent a popular superstition at the time. And this was used by people in the Middle Ages. The superstition was that the flowers somehow helped to fend off the plague. Now, the part in the rhyme that says ashes, ashes actually used to be atschu, atschu, like achu, achu, which symbolized sneezing. And sneezing was an early sign of the plague. Not all types of the plague involved sneezing, but at the time, if you sneezed, people thought that you had the plague. Kind of like now, if you cough, people are worried that you have COVID. It was later changed to ashes, ashes, we all fall down. And I think it's pretty easy to interpret that ashes, ashes represents how dead people are oftentimes cremated. And the last line, we all fall down. Most people that were stricken with the plague died. Hence, we all fall down. 
Something that I found interesting with this one was that people are kind of puzzled about it because the first known or recognized plague actually was in the early 1880s, which was 215 years after the London Plague and over 530 years after the Black Death. So this doesn't mean that the rhyme wasn't told until hundreds of years later. Maybe it just wasn't written about until much later, or maybe it was written, but people just didn't want to talk about it. We may never know the true reason as to why this was written, but I still find it interesting in a kind of dark and sad way. Coming in at number four, Mary Mary Quite Contrary. The rhyme goes like this. Mary Mary Quite Contrary, how does your garden grow? With silver bells and cockle shells and pretty maids all in a row. Boy oh boy is this a loaded one. This one actually is referring to Mary Tudor, aka Queen Mary, aka Bloody Mary. Miss Bloody Mary here was a super devout Catholic, believe it or not, and as we all know, many religions can be a bit pushy or harsh in its views, especially if you get talking to someone who's super devoted to their religion, they might come across as being kind of like strongly opinionated. Well, that was Miss Queen Bloody Mary here. She was infamous for not liking and also killing people of the Protestant religion. So let's break this down. The line, Mary Mary quite contrary, is referring to Bloody Mary, being that she's different in her ways of dealing with people. The line, how does your garden grow? The garden in the rhyme is suggested to be about graveyards that were growing in size because that's where the Protestants that she killed were buried. With silver bells and cockle shells. Silver bells and cockle shells were fancy words for instruments of torture. I had to look up what each one was, and apparently a silver bell is a thumb screw which crushed the thumb between two hard surfaces by the tightening of a screw. That sounds painful. The cockle shells, I'm not super clear on what those were. Everything that I found kind of came back to the same thing, and they were believed to be instruments of torture, which were somehow attached to the genitals. And I think that's all I need to know about that. And the last line, and pretty maids all in a row. Pretty maids was a reference to a device pretty much like the guillotine, which was originally called a maiden. Now, something else that I found while researching this that I could probably leave out, but I'm not. (laughs) So, trigger warning, if you can't do gory stuff, this is gory. Beheading wasn't always as clean-cut and quick like the movies portray it to be, especially in the time when these torture devices as described here were just being invented. So oftentimes, it could take up to 11 blows to actually sever someone's head. And apparently, with these instances with Bloody Mary, it was said that the victim often resisted and had to be chased around the scaffolding until they were caught and tried again with the guillotine. And this is going to be a twofer for you guys because we're not done with Little Miss Queen Bloody Mary Tudor quite yet. Coming in at number five, remember that nursery rhyme, Three Blind Mice? It's the one that goes like this. 
Three blind mice, three blind mice. See how they run, see how they run. They all run after the farmer's wife who cut off their tails with a carving knife. Did you ever see such a thing in your life as three blind mice? Yep, this one's about her too. So like I said, Bloody Mary didn't especially like Protestant people. And apparently during this time, the Protestants didn't exactly get along with the Catholics either. Apparently, the three blind mice in this rhyme refer to three Protestant loyalists who were accused of plotting against Queen Mary because of her torturous massacre against the Protestant people in her name. The farmer's wife refers to Queen Mary, who with her husband, King Philip of Spain, owned large estates. But Bloody Mary didn't exactly cut off the tails of these three Protestants because... They're men. They are not mice. She actually burned them at the stake. The blind part is thought to be in reference to the three men being quote-unquote misguided because they weren't really down for Mary implementing Catholicism throughout England. Catholicism and being Protestant, these are actually really prominent in a lot of nursery rhymes And there's even more backstory to this with Rockabye Baby as well, but I'll let you do your own research on that one because I think I've touched enough on this topic. Number six, Baba Black Sheep. It went like this. Baba Black Sheep, have you any wool? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Three bags full. One for the master, one for the dame, and one for the little boy who lives down the lane. Baba Black Sheep, have you any wool? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Three bags full. So of all of the nursery rhymes that I researched for this episode, this one has the most controversy because people can't seem to agree 100% what it's about. Originally, it was said that this rhyme was about a tax that was put on wool in the 13th century, and that tax was also known as the Great Custom. So this one is about the government taking from the poor and giving to the rich. Now, the original version of this rhyme went like this. Baba, black sheep, have you any wool? Yes, sir, yes, sir, three bags full. One for the master, one for the dame, and none for the little boy who cries down the lane. Now, in medieval England, wool was a major source of wealth. And under this new tax, the price of a sack of wool was split between the farmer, the king, and the church, who is referred to as the dame in this rhyme. It takes on a sinister hidden meaning if you consider that the original last line was none for the little boy who cries down the lane, which would hint that the probably poor shepherd boys who were doing all the work were the ones that were left with no profit because of this new tax. Isn't that so relatable to today? The working man and the working woman busting their asses to make ends meet while the rich just keep getting richer. Now, the area where people start to get controversial and tend to start disagreeing on the meaning of this rhyme is where it uses the color black and the word master. 
This led some people to wonder whether there was a racial message at its center, and I couldn't find much beyond literally just that. But it can make you wonder. I wouldn't be surprised. Also, the word black in Baba Black Sheep has now been changed to rainbow. So now it's Baba Rainbow Sheep. Have you any wool? And in my notes, I put LOL because I think, I think that's kind of funny. Number seven. Here we go round the mulberry bush. This originated back in 1840 and it goes like this. Here we go round the mulberry bush, the mulberry bush, the mulberry bush. Here we go round the mulberry bush on a cold and frosty morning. This one doesn't take long to explain. The song was originally sung by female prisoners at England's Wakefield Prison. These women were exercised every day outside around a mulberry tree on the prison grounds. The original song is much longer. They talk about brushing their teeth and brushing their hair and just their daily tasks. The tree itself lasted until 2019 at the prison, but the rhyme may have originated all the way back to the 19th century. Probably not what your kindergarten self had in mind while singing this on the playground. At number eight, we've got 10 Little Monkeys. This one's pretty long, so I'm not going to recite the whole thing, but you likely know how it goes. 10 Little Monkeys jumping on the bed, one fell off and bumped his head. You've likely sung some version of this nursery rhyme when you were a child, or maybe you sang it to your own children to teach them how to count backwards, and maybe sometimes just to amuse them. But it has a very, very sad racist backstory. This one is not so fun to talk about. Not that any are especially fun, but you know what I mean. The original nursery rhyme used the N-word and was actually called 10 Little N-Words, which counted down by talking about 10 different horrible ways for black children to die. One of the lines from its original version goes like this. 10 little N-word boys, one out to dine, one choked his little self, and then there were nine. Obviously, the N-word has now been changed to monkeys, which, as we all know, does not resolve how wrong the song is. Many people still use the word monkey when describing a black person, which is never okay, and yes, it is racist. Maybe they just need to do away with this one altogether if the best that they can come up with is monkey. I think they can do better than that. And if they can't, maybe it's time to be done with this rhyme. At number nine, I've got Humpty Dumpty. Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again. Just like many of the other nursery rhymes that I've discussed in this episode, this one also has a lot of different theories, but I'm going to start with the one that I like the most and that I thought made the most sense. So King Richard of England was also the Lord of Ireland from 1483 until his death in 1485. And King Richard had a horse and apparently his horse's nickname was Wall, W-A-L-L. Not sure why, but we'll go with it. 
Now, while King Richard was battling, he actually fell off of Wall, and it said that he got trampled and bludgeoned so hard by the enemies that after his death, even the pieces of his body couldn't be located to put back together. So if we go with this theory, Humpty Dumpty obviously represents King Richard, and the wall that he's sitting on represents his horse. If what really happened to him happened to him, that explains the part of the king's horses and the king's men not being able to put Humpty together again. Another theory which also makes sense is that Humpty Dumpty was referred to as a type of cannon that was used in the English war. And this cannon would shatter into a bunch of little pieces when it was lit. The cannon was hauled to the top of a wall and was used to rain down death, basically, on attacking troops during the English Civil War. So, if that's the theory we go with, maybe the nursery rhyme is just straightforward in what it says. It talks about the cannon on the wall, that when it goes off, it bursts into a million little pieces. Or... Maybe Humpty Dumpty was supposed to represent what happened to the attacking troops when they were struck by the cannon. The world may never know. Number 10, The Muffin Man. The Muffin Man was first recorded in a British manuscript in 1820 and was preserved in a library at the University of Oxford. The Muffin Man nursery rhyme goes like this. Oh, do you know the Muffin Man, the Muffin Man, the Muffin Man? Do you know the Muffin Man that lives on Drury Lane? Yes, I know the Muffin Man, the Muffin Man, the Muffin Man. Yes, I know the Muffin Man that lives on Drury Lane. I know you all are just loving my singing for all of these nursery rhymes. So the claim to this one is that the nursery rhyme, The Muffin Man, was actually inspired by a real 16th century serial killer. The man's name was Frederick Thomas Linwood, who also went by the nickname of Drury Lane Dicer, and he was supposedly known as England's first documented serial killer. However, everything online says that this is kind of unproven and it might not actually be true, so grain of salt, but I actually quite like the theory. Don't judge me. The popular nursery rhyme, The Muffin Man, originated supposedly as a caution to children warning them to beware of this 16th century baker turned serial killer. Apparently, The Muffin Man would entice young victims by pulling a muffin down a cobblestone street in London with a string. I know, that's the part where it gets a little bit unbelievable. It's thought that he probably killed 15 children and seven rival pastry chefs. Other theories are similar to this, but they suggest that maybe this guy, the muffin man, was a real serial killer, but that the song was made to remind children of who he was in the hopes that it would help them spot him if he ever approached the children using his methods. I guess they hoped that the children would then inform the police of his whereabouts and let the police know that they were approached by the Muffin Man. I think that's kind of putting a lot on a child to expect them to not take the bait of a tasty muffin, especially young children, and instead go to the police. Doesn't seem likely, but hey, what do I know? 
I think this whole idea of the Muffin Man, though it's likely not totally true, being England's like first known serial killer and that his competition and children being his like targeted victims, I think this could be like a super bomb HBO series and I would totally watch it. And all the sensitive people out there listening, don't get all worked up because it has to do with children. That's why I said HBO series. Don't judge me. Last on my list at number 11 is Cotton-Eyed Joe. It goes like this. If it hadn't been for Cotton-Eyed Joe, I'd been married a long time ago. Where did you come from? Where did you go? Where did you come from, Cotton-Eyed Joe? Pretty much everyone listening has probably heard this song, and the more popular version is by a Swedish band named Rednecks, of all things, but they have like a Swedish dance mix that pretty much everybody's probably heard at the bar or out somewhere, and it's always been like, you know, fun to dance to, right? I know this isn't quite a children's nursery rhyme or song for children, But it came up when I was researching and I really wanted to talk about its origin. There is lots of proven facts and history that Cotton Eye Joe was originated during slavery, like well before the Civil War. You can Google it. It's really easy to find. Um, When I was researching, I was actually able to find the YouTube video of the original song. Obviously, there's no music video. Um, because they didn't have music videos during slavery, but the audio, the best way I can describe it is very low quality and it doesn't sound like a very educated person is singing it. When I heard it, (laughs) who I pictured singing it was a man, like a white man with no teeth, like a straight up hillbilly. So getting back to Cotton Eye Joe, it's thought that the cotton of cotton eye joe referred to a q-tip which is used to swab a man's urethra to test for stds yep that's where this is going so the song states that if it weren't for cotton eye joe i'd been married a long time ago so it's widely thought that cotton eye joe is referred to as an std the man that's singing the song He kind of acts like he's playing dumb, like, where did this come from? Who else did I give it to? Going back to it being a slave song, there are, oh my goodness, there were so many theories. Yes, all of them involve slavery, but there were so many theories discussed about whose point of view the song is coming from. There's a theory that Joe was a slave driver and it's a song that slaves sang and the cotton-eyed part represented the whites of his eyes. So just kind of saying, as a slave point of view, um, if it weren't for him, I'd been married a long time ago. Which brings us to the sad part of history. There's a lot of sad parts when it comes to slavery. But it's a well-known fact that white men, white slave drivers raped black women all the time slave or not they would just see them they would do it whenever they wanted to do it there were no repercussions for it they just did what they wanted they did not view them as human beings they thought they were just there for abuse 
And oftentimes these poor women were left to have these men's babies. And I'd imagine they were left with something else besides a baby. I'm talking about an STD. Getting back to the beginning where I said it kind of sounds like a hillbilly guy, a white hillbilly guy singing it. Maybe, maybe this theory is correct. Maybe the song represents white men contracting STDs because they were all going around raping black women. They didn't value them. Maybe it's about a woman, a slavery woman, her point of view from being abused by white men. Maybe she, no one wanted to marry her because she had been abused and contracted this STD. No matter which way you look at it, it's disgusting, it's sad, it's horrific, and it should ruin Cotton Eye Joe for you. So next time you're at the club or the bar and you hear Cotton Eye Joe, I hope you think twice before you start like getting down and doing the jig to it. So there you have it. Those are just a few of the dark histories and creepy origins of children's nursery rhymes. I am aware that there are other versions of the ones that I shared with you today. There are many that I didn't cover. So if you've got some that you would like to share, I would love to have a conversation. You can email me your version at myinquiringmindpodcast at gmail.com. Or if you're on Facebook, you can like the My Inquiring Mind podcast Facebook page. And from there, you can join the My Inquiring Mind podcast group. Within the group, I post episode information early before the episode drops. And then after the episode drops, there is room for discussion with me and other people that listen to My Inquiring Mind to discuss each episode. So you can also share your other origins and theories on that page. Next week is Thanksgiving. So I'm not sure if I will get episode three out in time before Thanksgiving hits. Um, I haven't really shared on my business profiles or my podcast profiles, but my sweet little pup, Sebastian, he was diagnosed last week with cancer, and he had a very progressive cancerous tumor that needed to be removed within like four days from the time that we found out. So it's been a very traumatic, a very emotional and stressful last week or so. He pretty much needs constant care right now. He has a huge, like, rainbow shape almost incision on his back with 12 staples, and he did have a wound drain in that needed to be taken care of. So I've really got to keep close eye on him. So I'm staying at home more this week. I'm not really able to work and stuff, so I had more time to do this episode. If I have time between preparing for family to come in and preparing for Thanksgiving and taking care of Sebastian... I will record episode three and try to get it out Tuesday or Wednesday of next week before Thanksgiving. So if you don't hear from me before Thanksgiving, I'll be back the week after Thanksgiving. I hope you all have a happy Thanksgiving with your family and friends. Stay safe, be with loved ones, take it all in, and I'll talk to you next time. All sources for this episode will be listed in the episode notes.